0: Never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have 7.7 trillion dollars worth of economic
1: events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is an economy of one with Gary Rathbun, president and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice,
0: free market voice
1: of the U.S. Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with
2: Gary Rathbun.
1: This is our country.
2: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Maybe, maybe... It almost feels like we're starting to win the battle a little bit, at least one. You've heard me talk a lot about civil asset forfeiture, and it happens all over this country, and some states are worse than others, of course. And we've talked to John Whitehead uh, from the Rutherford Institute, author of the book Battlefield America, several times. He's going to be on the show next week, I believe. But in the meantime, we're starting to see some changes, some positive changes in the state governments. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, because Ohio, my home state, uh, got some very important legislation going through Michigan, Florida, Indiana. I mean, we're starting to get ahead of the game, I think. I think. One of the most important things to watch is the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, in their fall session has agreed to hear a case called Luis versus the United States. Now, the case itself doesn't really interest me. It's about a woman who is accused of defrauding Medicare to the tune of about $40 million. It's not that it doesn't interest me, but the case around the case is what interests me. Now, according to... records that we have seen the defendant this lady that is accused of stealing forty million dollars has had all of her assets frozen and the prosecutor in uh, pretrial preliminary hearings got the court to freeze all of her assets Uh, on the surface that makes sense makes sense because she could hide all of her assets and uh, spend them all or whatever Medicare would not be able to recover anything, but it's been proven that she's got $15 million that are what we consider untainted assets. There's no connection to this $15 million to the $40 million that she is accused of being defrauded out of Medicare. Now, how do they determine that? I don't know. Maybe it's inherited money. Maybe it's assets before she became a doctor. So I don't know. But suffice it to say that the court is convinced or the defense attorney is convinced that he can prove that there's $15 million in untainted assets. And, and part of the reason that's important is if these don't become unfrozen, if she doesn't have access to this $15 million, uh, she's got no money to pay her attorneys. She has no money to defend herself. Why I think this case is important is because it goes to the heart of civil asset forfeiture of freezing assets before someone is convicted. And if you remember in talking about civil asset forfeiture around the country, it happens all over, has happened all over. And the people that are losing their assets have never been charged with a crime, let alone convicted of a crime. And so many states are coming through with legislation to prevent this from happening. The United States Supreme Court in Louis versus the United States will be very important in that argument. If the Supreme Court says you cannot freeze or hold untainted assets, that's a big step on the federal level of getting rid of or limiting asset forfeiture now the state of Ohio my home state has legislation pending it's been introduced by uh, State Representative Robert McCauley a Republican from Napoleon Ohio oddly enough within my neighborhood my district is just north of his and what they have introduced representative McCauley uh, along with Tom Brinkman it would eliminate civil asset forfeiture under state law would allow only allow for forfeiture under criminal proceedings in which the offender's guilt was proven beyond a reasonable doubt and the individual was convicted of a crime. Now that is vastly different than Ohio's current law and many of the laws, uh, state laws throughout the United States. There's just been case after case after case of situations where people have never been charged with a crime and they've had assets seized now ohio law says that ohio courts can take away property from citizens who have not been convicted or charged with a crime this would greatly change that reinstate fourth amendment and fifth amendment rights now, Macaulay says, if we're going to be a government for the people, it is vitally important that we protect the rights of Ohio citizens and that we ensure justice is served and the rights are preserved under the court of law. That's better than saying, you know what, you look guilty. We think you might be guilty. So we're going to take all your stuff. And that's where I have a problem with civil asset forfeiture, because people seizing the assets have a financial motivation for taking your assets. Now, the Ohio law, the Institute for Justice, the Justice Action Network, Freedom Works, NAACP, and the ACLU, along with the Buckeye Institute, all support this. So that's pretty wide-ranging. Michigan, just north of us, we've got a lot of affiliates in, in Michigan listening. A civil forfeiture package sailed through the Michigan legislature recently unanimously, Unanimously, i've never seen a piece of legislation anywhere go through unanimously but it increases the civil asset forfeiture reporting requirements for law enforcement agencies now this is a little bit different it doesn't stop civil asset forfeiture but it shines a lot of sunlight on the reporting of it and the idea is it's going to make it harder for government to keep confiscated property. Law enforcement agencies will have to file an annual report with the state detailing all their forfeiture cases and proceeds, and that will make it a lot easier to track. Too often, assets are seized, and it's cheaper for people to let them go than to fight it because the burden of proof is on the individual. Now, we're starting to see this over and over in different states. Indiana, our other neighboring state, just made it legal for a person to defend themselves, even to the point of using lethal force against police officers who initiate aggression without cause in someone's home or person or vehicle. So that is huge. That reverses a 2011 law in Indiana that essentially said you couldn't prosecute a police officer for violating your rights or breaking into your home or anything like that. Now, this is very important because it goes to the heart of the Second Amendment second amendment our founding fathers were very very smart in the sense that they knew it was natural law it was instinctual to resist to defend yourself and finally finally we're seeing some states put that into law Florida the same way they're enhancing their self-defense stance we're seeing it all over the country this is very important to private property rights Absolutely critical to private property, which is absolutely critical to liberty. So if we want our liberty and we want to survive going forward, we need to have these laws in place. We need to support the states and the representatives behind the legislation. We need to become informed and make sure it gets through and make sure it's not the end. Michigan, good step. Got a lot of steps to go yet. Ohio, good step. Indiana, good step. But there's more to be had. Coming up, are they really going to ban physical cash? And, of course, California is being their usual dumb self. We'll take a look at that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
2: You know, central banks, not just ours, not just our Federal Reserve, but central banks all over the world hate cash. Absolutely hate cash. And you think about it, the way our economy is created, it makes sense. The U.S. financial system only has about $1.3 trillion in physical cash. $1.3 trillion. If you include all the digital money, short-term accounts, long-term accounts, bank accounts, money markets, that kind of stuff, uh, now we got about ten trillion added up. Remember, there's only still one point three trillion in cash. The stock market has twenty trillion in value, and the bond market has thirty-eight trillion in value. So you start looking at all of this. All the mortgages. The mortgages have fifty-eight trillion. That's the bonds, commercial paper, that kind of stuff. So you add all this up, and it's a whole lot more than the amount of cash we have. Now the first question is, so what? Who cares? It's in stocks, it's in bonds, it's in money markets. Well, the problem is that the credit aspect of money, the credit side of the equation, has become so large that even a small amount of Of individuals or institutions wanting to turn their holdings into cash will have a problem. Central banks will have a problem. There just isn't enough cash. Now, that's part of the argument. The other part of the argument, as I see it, is whatever cash there is out there, $1.3 trillion. Whatever the velocity of money is, let's say it's two, meaning that that one point three trillion turns over twice in a given year, so it equates to two point six trillion in actual transactions. Those transactions, cash transactions, virtually impossible for Uncle Sam to track. That, to me, is the real issue around the conversation of trying to ban physical cash. Now, I personally, I don't think it's ever going to happen. It might, but certainly not soon. And I don't think it'll be complete. Uh, Can they put in capital control? Sure. We've seen Spain do that. We've seen other countries do it, Cyprus, Greece. All these countries try to control the money flow. But even they can't get rid of cash. People use cash. Now, we've gotten away from cash in a lot of our transactions, a lot of credit cards, and most uh, recently, the last 10 years or so, have been debit cards. Debit cards are all over. Very few people use cash. Very few people use checks even. But the reason government wants to get rid of cash, they tell you there's not enough cash to survive a massive withdrawal which is absolutely true but i think more importantly the government is unable to track those transactions if they can't track them they don't know what you're doing and naturally they feel all those transactions should be taxed in some way so they get their piece of the pie not true of course but that's what they think so we're hearing more and more, reading more and more about banning physical cash. I don't think it's going to happen in the immediate future. I don't think it's going to happen in the near future. Will it happen someday? Probably. But when it does, when, when, when life becomes Star Trek and all you have is credits, and those credits are all moved around via computer, then we'll have a big loss to our liberty and a big loss to... To privacy, people don't understand the importance of private property and privacy to our liberty. Every time the government is able to track what you're doing, no matter how benign the action is you're taking, you lose a little bit of liberty. And I question of being able to break the law with impunity. I'm not. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with privacy. I'm going to spend some time in the weeks ahead talking about private property. I'm gaining a lot of research on private property, do a little writing on it. We'll talk about it. But America was founded on the principle of private property. Everybody thinks we were founded on religion. That was only part of it. We were founded on the principle of private property. And to this day, we're one of the few countries in the world that has private property property every day the government however tries to take those rights away they tax it they try to regulate it epa is a epa would assume would would like nothing more than for none of us to own our own land but banning cash one of the early steps don't think it's going to happen anytime soon california however governor jerry brown i mean god bless this guy it's just amazing what he does and and how it's going to drive more and more business out of California. He's welcoming in all the illegal aliens and, or undocumented workers or whatever the heck he called. And, you know, we've seen San Francisco, we've seen several other cities raise their, their minimum wage to $15 and how many jobs are leaving immediately? How many businesses are bailing out of those communities? Well, he's got a kind of a left-handed way of minimum wage. It's not really minimum wage, but it's called the Fair Pay Act, the California Fair Pay Act. Now, I got no problem with equal pay for equal work. I had no problem with that. I don't care what your gender is, none of that kind of stuff. But what this does, instead of equal pay for equal work It's equal pay for substantially similar work. Substantially similar. Boy, that's a litigation lawyer's dream right there. It allows employees to challenge the fairness of their pay before a state division of labor by drawing on comparisons to substantially similar jobs with different titles or at other work sites. And it prohibits employers from retaliating against those who seek to raise their pay under the law. So you're hamstringing employers and you're giving employees a lot more leeway on suing their employer, if you will, or filing charges against their employer. Coming up, I got a special guest. Special guest, Stephen Moore is going to be joining me talking about the migration from blue states to red states. You'll want to stay with me for that. Gary Rethman, an economy of one.
1: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
2: We are joined now by Stephen Moore. He's an economic writer and policy expert. He's known for advocating free market policies and supply side economics. He's currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, overseeing the Project for Economic Growth. He's written a lot of books, co authored uh, several with uh, Art Laffler, including The End of uh, Prosperity, The Return of Prosperity. And most recently, the wealth of states. Stephen, welcome to the show. I appreciate it.
0: Hi, happy to be with you.
2: You know, I uh, I read just about everything you write. I, I uh, hope you appreciate <laughs> that. You. I, I always look for. <laughs> I do appreciate it. <laughs> everything and and your books have have been terrific. Most recently, I wanted to touch base with you. You've written quite a bit uh, about the migration of uh, wealth and individuals from. Uh, blue states to red states. Why? Why? What's right. what, what, what's what's the attraction in red states? Why is that happening <laughs> in this country?
0: Well, because that's where the jobs are, Yeah. <laughs> we're really seeing. I mean, this is one of the most important migration, uh, you know, uh, patterns in American history, where we're seeing day after day after day, blue states like you know New York and New mm-hmm. Jersey and Connecticut and California, my home state of Illinois, Minnesota are losing people and they're mostly going south they're going to states like texas and tennessee and south carolina and north carolina and they're going to arizona and they're going to the dakotas and i think it's because i think there a lot of reasons i mean partly it's the weather people do want to move to places that are warmer and have more sunshine but the big factor is that the Red states have much more pro-growth policy, policies. You can get richer in red states. You, there are more jobs in red states. There are more businesses in red states. Um, and all of those factors explain why uh, people are moving. By the way, it's, it's cheaper to live in red states than blue states. Yeah. Um, you know, you, My favorite example is comparing, you know, if you look at the four biggest states, Texas, Florida, California, and New York, two of those states, California and New York, are you know, blue states, and right. two of them are red states, uh, Texas and, and uh, Florida. And for every job in the last 15 years that was created in California and New York, you know, three to four jobs have been created in, in Texas and Florida.
2: Now, is that mainly due to, like, state income tax, or oh, yeah. uh, is it right-to-work issues, union Both. issues?
0: Well, Those are the Both two seven? biggest factors of, that explain why jobs move from one state to another and why businesses move from one state to another. So the first big factor is income tax rate. Um, I mentioned, you know, the Texas, Florida versus California, New York situation. So uh, in Texas and Florida, as you know, the income tax rate is zero. There is no income tax in Texas, right. and there's no income tax in Florida. Right. Uh, conversely, you know, um, California, New York, the highest tax rate is as high as 13%. So, you know, you can save a lot of money if you're a millionaire or, uh, you know, make uh, run a big business by moving to a state that has no income tax, and that's exactly what businesses do. I mean, there was an example earlier, I think it was late last year, where Toyota, one of the major you know, Toyota, North America, moved its its headquarters out of California and moved to Texas. And right. one of the big reasons was was taxation. Um, and the other big factor is right to work. So, you know, there's no doubt about it that right to work states create twice as many job new jobs as non-right to work states. So uh, now what state, where are you? I'm in Ohio. Ohio. So um, Ohio is a, not a right to work state. No,
2: we, we voted state. it down. And it's interesting yeah, you exactly. say that because I forget who I was talking to in the last week, but Michigan, which is kind of the epitome of Keynesian economics for, for a long time, is a right-to-work state, and they're creating jobs over Ohio about three to one or so.
0: Yeah, so Michigan is just, I mean, think about this. In just the last five years, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin have all become right to work because they understand that that's where you get the jobs. Now, Ohio is a state, I mean, if you want to create more jobs, and Ohio's done pretty, very well under John Kasich. He's a good, he's been a good governor, but, and, look, it's very simple. You have to be a right-to-work state if you want to create the jobs. And, it's, right away, right-to-work is not anti-union. It, it doesn't say you can't have a union in Ohio. You can certainly have a union. It just says that the workers can't be required to join the union and pay the dues. And, and you know, this is simply a right of association that, you know, every individual worker should be able to make up his or her own mind if he wants to join the union. It shouldn't be required as a condition of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you were to ask me what... Create jobs there is absolutely no question the answer is well, ohio has to become a right to work state because you're going to be surrounded by states that are already right to work if you're if you're not right to work you're going to see more and more jobs bleed out of ohio
2: yeah no question i talked to uh, mitch daniels a few years ago when he was governor of indiana and they just passed right to work and and i asked him i says uh, how do you feel about ohio and he said don't think you're not on our attack agenda and, yeah, uh, well, you
0: know, know. I'm, from, <laughs> I'm from Illinois, and, you know, Indiana's yeah. also taken a lot of jobs out of Illinois. Now, we we finally have a pretty good governor, Bruce Rauner, in Illinois. He's trying to change things, make, uh, you know, Illinois has been one of the bluest states. But, you know, right. the fact that we finally got rid of some of these. Um, you know, horrible governors that uh, Illinois has had. We've got somebody who wants to reform the state, cut the taxes, and and become right to work. And by the way, one of the things that's interesting is in in some states, um, counties are becoming right to work. So even if the state isn't right to work, you know, the county becomes a right to work county, and maybe that would be a way to get right to work in Ohio.
2: You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I read all of your stuff. It seems uh, very evident that... The red states, the states that are creating jobs, why that's happening, the taxes, the right to work, the the regulatory uh, uh, environment. How come other governors aren't catching on? I mean, it's it's like not seeing the the forest for the trees, you know?
0: Oh, they are. They are. I mean, we're winning at the state level as conservatives. There's no doubt about it. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, who would have thought five years ago that Indiana – uh, Wisconsin and, and Michigan, three Michigan, of those states yeah. were the cradle of unionism would become right to work. You just, uh, you know, Nevada just a couple months ago, uh, passed a statewide education voucher bill. You've got, uh, uh, something like fifteen states last year, including Ohio, that cut their tax rates i mean we 're winning all over this country. South Carolina just uh, reduced their business tax rate um, it, it's amazing how our free market conservative ideas are just taking over the states it 's a beautiful thing to see, and the states that don 't do this are getting left behind. i mean states like California and new York, and you know the the joke in New York is you know we've lost. New Yorker, please turn up the lights because they're losing so many people. 100,000 people on that left um, New York just last year for other states.
2: Wow. That's amazing. We're talking with Stephen Moore, one of the top economists in the United States and a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Stephen, do you see these conditions, these characteristics of the red states and the success behind them? Do you see that translating to the nation as a whole? Do you see Washington Noticing these characteristics and and adopting them anytime in the near future.
0: Well, first of all, liberals try to deny that it's happening. So I've been doing a lot of debates with liberals about you know the fact that the red states are clobbering the blue states, and and this is a hard thing for liberals to explain. Right? I mean, liberals say, oh, we're going to have high tax on the rich we're going to have minimum wages, we're going to have these all these regulations, and uh... you know we're not going to drill for our energy resources because we care about climate change and all that stuff. And, you know, they, and they say, we're going to create a worker's paradise. And, you know, when I debate these liberals, I say, what kind of worker's paradise is it if all the workers are leaving and they are going to the states and doing just the opposite of what you recommend? Right. And, you know, try that on one of your liberal friends. They don't have an explanation. They can't explain why people are moving, you know, from, so why are people moving from San Diego, which has the most beautiful weather in the country, right. to Houston? <laughs> it's <laughs> happening day after day. I mean, everywhere I go, I see, you know, every state i go to whether it's colorado or california or idaho or utah all you see is california license plates um (laughs) people are leaving they're they're voting with their feet against liberalism now on the national level you know we've got this obviously one of the most important presidential elections since 1980 coming up and i was very pleased to see donald trump has joined, you know, with uh, so many of these other Republican candidates is talking about cutting tax rates to make America more competitive. Right. Meanwhile, look at the Democratic side. I mean, Hillary Clinton wants to raise the capital gains tax, not cut it. She wants yeah. to make it higher. Uh, Bernie Sanders, who's the, who's the you know, uh, the, the um, kind of uh, ice cream of the day for the Democrats, flavor right. of the day, he wants to raise tax rates to 60%, 70%. So there's right. a huge cultural divide between what democrats want to do or what republicans want to do
2: now the you know it, it surprises me with with uh, bernie sanders especially i mean he's you, you got to give him credit he's honest about being a socialist but yes yeah you know is is he really garnering is hillary clinton and, and bernie sanders really garnering that much support or is it kind of wishful spin on the mainstream media standpoint
0: Well, you know, they are, look, the Democratic Party, and I say this painfully because I think it's terrible for America, but on a national level, the Democratic Party has been taken over by a radical left. People who believe that the biggest problem in America is, is global warming, not you know how do we get jobs, how do we how do we uh, you know get Americans a pay raise, how do we deal with terrorism, how do we deal with our national debt? No, those aren't problems. We're going to stop the rise of the ocean by like shutting down our energy industry and so on. I mean, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I remember when, when Democrats cared about working class people. Now now they care more about trees than they do about um, you know working class people. People. and so I think this is a big problem for the for the Democratic Party that they 've become so radicalized that they are turning to policies that would be so harmful to our economy. And, you know, we, we, all we have to do is look at Barack Obama's presidency. I mean, this has been the weakest recovery from a recession. Mm-hmm. that We've seen in 60 years. You've got to go back to the Great Depression to remember a period that was so bad for the American economy. Now, Obama didn't cause the recession. That happened under Bush. Right. But the recovery has been terrible. I mean, America's having a pay raise now for 10 years.
2: Right. We're speaking with Stephen Moore, one of the top economists in the U.S. and a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, author of many books, including *The Wealth of States*. Most recently, *Who's the Fairest of Them All? The End of Prosperity, Return of Prosperity*. Before I let you go, uh, I got to ask you a very personal question. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Edward Pinto on from uh, American Enterprise Institute talking about the housing bubble and and that kind of stuff. And and you had referenced him in a in a column you wrote, and I reference the column to him. Um, I know all my listeners are very curious or very concerned. Did you ever uh – Get your mortgage approved for the new house.
0: Yeah, you know. So that, for those who are not uh, don't know what we're talking about, I wrote a column called "Why I Can't Get a Mortgage," and it was basic and it got a huge amount of attention because I basically said, "Look, I'm buying this house. I'm putting 25 percent down payment right, on it. Right. I have a house right now. I have a 30 year mortgage. I've made every mortgage payment. I've never missed a payment. In fact, I prepaid my mortgage. You know, and uh, I went into the three banks. They wouldn't let me have a mortgage. And you know, and that's because." You You know, the lender writing standards are now so tough, and because of this crazy law, that frank, you know, banks Mm aren't making the loans to even good lenders. And by the way, I can't tell you how many people said I'm in the same situation, but the good news, the end of the story is, I finally found an unconventional lender. It wasn't Guido the loan shark, (laughs) but it was close to that, who made me a loan. And uh, but my point was, look, the government's still insuring people. You know, low-income people walk in and they they get a three percent down payment, hundred percent taxpayer guaranteed. I'm putting twenty-five percent down on my house, and I can't get a mortgage. What's wrong with this country?
2: <laughs> well, and I just really enjoyed the article. I didn't mean to put you on the spot on that. But <laughs> yeah,
0: I, the good news is I'm moving into my new house next month. So
2: oh, well, okay. Well, if you need any help, I'm busy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: great to be with you, and I uh,
2: hope you have a great day. Thanks a lot, Stephen. I really appreciate your time. Take care. We've been talking with Stephen Moore, former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and current senior economic contributor. At FreedomWorks. Up next, we're going to take a look at the most expensive place in the world to live. may not be where you think. I'll tell you about that next. An Economy of One with Gary
1: Rathbun. Back to An Economy of
2: One with Gary Rathbun. Where is the most expensive place to live? You'd think it might be Norway, uh, Japan, Switzerland, Monaco even. Uh, No. I have a friend that does a lot of world traveling and we were talking the other day. And he spent a little time in, you ready? Venezuela. Why? I don't know. I don't know why anybody would go there, but he did. And we're talking and he took a 15-minute cab ride down to the beach, cost him $158 in American money. Now, Venezuela, I don't know if you followed any of this or not, but uh Hugo Chavez, I mean he was really the the guy, now he's passed away. But uh years Years of, of corruption, incompetence, and most importantly, central planning have virtually destroyed that country. They're running at about 800% inflation. Now, you would think of Venezuela, with all their natural resources, uh, beautiful, beautiful country, so they should have a lot of tourism money, that kind of stuff, uh, you would think— they would be doing much better, but they're not. The uh, oil has collapsed in price, of course, and that's affected them tremendously. A huge oil reserves uh, down there. I mean, that's where the government generates most of its revenue is from exporting uh, oil. But the government spends a lot more than it generates, obviously, and it's so screwed up that the government. It has no hope. The economy has no hope unless oil gets over $100 a barrel again, which I think is going to be a while, and they get the corruption out of their government. Now, what I've noticed over my life on Earth, plus all that I read about history, is corruption, especially at that level, never fixes itself. It has to be fixed generally through radical action, revolution, military, something like that. But Venezuela has destroyed uh, their currency. It's called the Bolivar. And uh, they've they just printed money and continue to print money uh, relentlessly. 800% inflation. Now, as any corrupt government, first thing you wanted to do for the uh a solution was to introduce price controls. You and I both know economics 101. When you fix the price of something, the supply goes away. So they tried fixing prices in the grocery store um, everywhere and, and you, you, we saw the articles where uh, you know, toilet paper is non-existent there. They've tried to have capital controls meaning nobody can move money outside the country they tried to fix the exchange rate now fix i don't mean they tried to make it better they tried to lock it in at a set exchange the official rate for the boulevard is 6.3 to the u.s dollar my friend exchanged some dollars to boulevards on the black market And for $50, he got 20,000 boulevards. That's a 400 to 1 versus the 6.3 to 1, which is the official rate. So his taxi ride that he told me cost $158 really only cost him $2.50 with black market boulevards. Had they been regular government boulevards, it would have been $158. Now, Venezuela, uh, beautiful country. It it could be a top retirement destination. You can can live like a king there before all of this happened. On $1,000 a month, inflation has led to price controls, capital controls, media controls. It's destroyed people's standard of living, and violent crime has just went through the roof. Now... You and I can look back and say, geez, uh, that's got to suck. That's terrible. But that's not going to happen here, and uh, I'm going to go watch Dancing with the Stars. Well, you can say that, and I will agree with you to a certain extent that I don't think that's going to happen here. But just because we're not as far down the road as Venezuela is doesn't mean we're not on the same road. The advantage we have is the dollar is the world's currency. So we can print money without 800% inflation, but we're still printing money and we're still creating inflation. Earlier, we talked about getting rid of cash. That's a form of capital controls, just like Venezuela, just like Greece, just like Cyprus. So we're doing some of the same things. I don't think they're going to have the same impact on us. And certainly we're not going down the road yet yet of triple digit inflation but we are on that road and it's very important to look at that because these are very very important economic lessons that we're able to see we're absolutely able to see the extreme of what could happen should we do what venezuela is doing so whenever government says they want to do something take a look at how that worked out in venezuela and it'll give you an indication. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time.
1: This is our country.
2: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.